Welcome to Future Proof, the marketing podcast from Said Business School, University of Oxford, and Kantar, the marketing insights and consulting company. In each episode, we'll have a frank discussion with industry experts to help brands and business leaders navigate the changing landscape of marketing and hopefully dispel some myths and misconceptions along the way. Hi, I'm Amy Cashman, UKMD for Kantar TNS and finance client lead across Kantar. I'm Andrew Stephen, the L'Oreal Professor of Marketing and Associate Dean. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Research at the Said Business School. Today, uh, we're here to talk about the role that Twitter plays in the marketing mix and the, and the kind of way that it helps brands connect with different audiences. But also, interestingly as well, we're going to talk about the role that Twitter has in the insight industry and some of the developments and, and changes they're looking at in that area. We're very pleased to have Jake Stedman, who's the Senior Director of Research International Agency at Twitter, join us today. So, Jake, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. A lot of the work we've sort of done globally at Kantar shows us how people behave differently in each markets in terms of sort of social media usage, Twitter usage. Mm-hmm. I just wondered if you could talk about, I mean, Twitter's used for news and things. Is that pretty consistent across markets? Are there some markets where, you know, Twitter's used in a different way by brands is, might be of interest? Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating. So I look after research outside of America. So I kind of have overview of very different markets culturally. And the use case is fascinating. There, there is a common theme, which is to connect to what's happening. That's why people use us. So we're in the news section of the app store, and that's the case across the world. So that's how people find Twitter and why people use Twitter. But the definition of news can be very different market by market. It can be a very local. You know, news can be find out about your local butchers and what they've got on, it can be find out about global geopolitical issues. So if we find that the use case at that slightly more lower level does change. Um, it's also really interesting to look at cultural differences just driven by things like language. So in Japan, for example, um, 280 characters gives you a lot more freedom than in Germany, where, where you know characters are, in a word are much larger. So the use case and the way people use the platform is quite different and it's really fascinating to watch that percolate and how people approach it and what that means they talk about as well as consume. And I guess that's really interesting for any global manufacturers or other clients who want to use Twitter as a medium for a more global campaign to really think about that nuance as they're building it into their mix. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's fascinating. 
I think ultimately, if you're a brand and you're trying to communicate with customers, you know, Twitter allows you to connect to the conversation that is relevant to your customers, right? So if, you know, if you're a football fan, you come to Twitter to follow your favorite players and your team and your journalists, etc. But you're also there to hear from Nike and from Adidas. There's a real permission for brands or a desire for brands to be part of that conversation. They have a lot to add. And that is the case internationally, globally. So you're right, but I think that there is a, always a common thread, which is connect the brand to what's happening. I know you've done some work with media mix modeling in, in relation to sort of where does Twitter fit into, uh, into a broader mix. So, so, so where does it fit? So, so what role does Twitter play when, when we combine it with other, other media channels? It's interesting. I think it's, kind of, it's useful to stand back a minute and think about why people are coming to Twitter. So as I say, people come to Twitter to find out what's happening. That's why they're on the platform. And that means they have this receptivity to hearing from brands. Um, and we find that that receptivity translates into campaign results. So through our, we have a, a program, a global program of market mix modeling. And what we find is that across all of our studies, we see a really strong sales impact. So we have an average ROI of $3.36 for every dollar invested. That's across 44 of our most recent MMM studies. But we also really believe Twitter, you know, it doesn't exist in a bubble. We often talk about Twitter being a bridge, not an island. Uh, and we believe in a diverse marketing mix actually delivering the best results. Uh, and particularly for us, there's something really interesting about the relationship between Twitter and television. I think from a user point of view, that makes sense as well. I'm a massive Love Island fan. fan, And I love Love Island, but I love Love Island and Twitter. It's so much more fun if you're doing those two things simultaneously. And that, again, translates to campaign results. So when we, we model the impact of that using MMM, we see as much as a 29% uplift in TV ROI when it's supported by Twitter. And again, that's across variety of categories, markets, and MMM models. For me, when I think about sort of the, the multi-channel kind of, you know, social plus whatever else, TV in this case, to me it really does seem about the social gives you that community that enriches the, the viewing experience. Are there other examples that, that you guys have maybe found in some of your research of, of where Twitter works really well with other, other types of media channels? Twitter works really well with live. So, you know, in that situation, you know, we're talking about live TV and we're all kind of collectively viewing the same TV show together globally, if you like. But I think the same applies to, um, to watching live sports, for example. Actually, we did a really interesting piece of work where we went, uh, we did some ethnography where we followed people to go and watch live sports. So um, we went and watched basketball in the States, um, football in Japan, various other sports in different markets. And it's, it's fascinating to watch people at there watching the game and using Twitter to kind of augment their experience. So in Japan, we saw people you know, watching the goal live, but then immediately getting Twitter and looking at you know, people's commentary about that, what ex-players thought about that, watching the goal again. It's amazing to watch that kind of heighten the experience and the debate they have with their, their friends who are there at the game with them. Um, and the same with the basketball is really interesting when someone scores a basket. Is that what you do in basketball? <laughs> yeah, someone does one of those. It, it's fascinating to watch the kind of the emotional intensity. So in that situation, we, we actually were doing biometric research. And when people do something amazing on the basketball court, there is a heightened emotional response to that. And what Twitter does is, is maintain that emotional response. So once someone has done something great on the court, your kind of your biometrics quite quickly drop back down. But when you're using Twitter, it takes you up there and it keeps you up there because you're reliving it and you're talking to other people about it and you're seeing it from different camera angles. I think it's fascinating to watch how it 
enhances any kind of live experience. And have you got some good examples of where brands have got involved in those conversations in a kind of a really authentic way on Twitter? Um, because you know what you're saying that they're a, ni- a nice little community of people who are very much enjoying chatting to each other about Love Island. How does a brand come into that conversation authentically and without feeling intrusive to the people involved? There is a, a shampoo and a, um, a hair wax brand that was heavily involved in sponsoring Love Island and they get involved in that conversation. And I think they have something genuine to offer in there because, you know, their products appeal to the target audience, right? And so they can contribute. And it's as much about tone of voice and having a point of view on on the TV show and the conversation and the topic. It's not about interjecting every conversation to talk about hair wax. It's about talking about Love Island. Uh, and people love the fact that actually the brands have personality and passion and care about the kind of topics that... That matter to them, and I, th- I think I think you're right. Also makes me think of some research that at Oxford we did with Cantar that we talked about in a previous episode of this podcast, which basically says to to do well, particularly in terms of generating a brand lift in social media instead of a newsfeed environment. Essentially, you you want to you want to fit in, and so if the brand acts more social, so so it's about being with the right audience, but also using language that that makes it seem human. Tone of voice is critical, and I think. There are lots of different ways to engage with customers on Twitter and you need to find the tone of voice that is appropriate for both the brand and the situation. I'll give you a really good example, actually. It's not, it's not entirely current, but it's from my personal experience. So pre-Twitter, I worked at O2 uh, and telcos sometimes have network outages and we had a fair few while I was there. And what the social customer service team did superbly there was engage in the right kind of tone of voice that felt like O2. It felt very like Sean Bean would say it, who does, you know, he's the voice of O2 on all of their TV ads. Um, it was funny, it was, you know, apologizing, um, but it was also playful. And I think finding the right tone of voice for that situation can hugely impact positively the customer experience. So what we found through the measurement work that I was doing at the time at O2 is people that had that kind of engagement had hugely more positive perceptions of the brand longer term um, than those that didn't. So there is a real opportunity to, um, to actually turn a, a negative into more of a positive there. So Jake, we've talked quite a bit about the kind of audiences that exist on Twitter and the power that they have for brands to connect. I just wondered, you know, what is the sort of level of understanding you have of those users? What kind of data are you collecting and how does that feed into your, your work with brands? I mean, tweets are entirely public and searchable. Um, and that, I think, is the power of Twitter. And that's why brands come to Twitter, because it is you know, everything that people are talking about is public. So it's a public conversation. We work with brands to understand what that conversation means for them, both about their brand, but also about topics that are relevant to that brand and of interest to that brand. But we don't just work with Twitter data as well. It's important to say I'm a researcher um, and we have lots of different, more, much more traditional data sets, quantitative, qualitative, ethnography. We have our own community of users called Twitter Insiders. So we use Twitter data absolutely but not just Twitter data. We use all various different data sets to help brands understand the questions they've got. Just wondered if you could talk a bit more about that kind of Twitter approach to research and understanding. You know, like how, how is your function structured internally? What, what yeah. types of skill sets do you have within the function? How do you approach challenges? Yeah, happy to. And important to say we're on a journey. So I joined Twitter nearly six years ago now, which was pre-IPO, the second researcher outside of the US, so I joined very much to build or help build Twitter globally. So the role and the team that we built back then is very different to the one we've got now, we're post-IPO and all the rest of it. So 
Back then, I joined and we built the UK, then the EMEA, and then the international function. And our focus was really on scale. So what we were focused on at that point was a team of generalists from a research skills point of view who could help brands answer the questions they've got and the challenges they've got. And we partnered with a wide network of different partners like Kantar to help us answer those kinds of challenges. As we've then grown and matured, what we found is that the composition of teams needs to change in relation to the questions we're getting from brands. So we're increasingly beginning to hire specialists, uh, data scientists, but equally, you know, qualitative specialists, all within a, a regional function so that we have the ability to call on these individuals and these skill sets when we need them. So it's a kind of a continuation of journey. There are still generalists as well. I'm a generalist myself. But I think increasingly as the questions we get are more specific and more dedicated to a particular skill set, then we're also hiring those kinds of skill sets. It's really interesting. I, I always think about the, the journey we've been on in relation to the offices. Your environment's really critical to you at work, right? And at Twitter, when I joined, we were in a shared Regis space in Great Titchfield Street in London. And I don't know, there was maybe 20 of us and it was kind of scrappy. We were a startup, as I say, it was two years pre-IPO. It was a lot of fun um, and a lot of energy. And we're now nearly four years po post-IPO um, in a lovely office in Piccadilly in London. Um, and it's a very different environment. It's still a lot of energy and still a lot of fun, but we've been through a big transition and I kind of measure that transition by the desk that I've got to sit at at the moment. It's, it's, it's an interesting analogy. And if you look to the future, look forward sort of five years, I mean, what kind of skill sets do you think you'll need in your, in your role and in, in your team? It sounds like it's already evolving just over the last six. And then if we look forward to sort of the next six, what would you, what kind of things could you see emerging that you would need? I think ultimately we are a customer facing research team. So, you know, we're a sales support research team internationally. There are other research teams in Twitter, in um, San Francisco, and New York, but my team internationally are sales support. So we work with customers every day. And that means, you know, I will always need a certain set of skills. I always need people that can interpret data and deliver stories to people and talk to people, understand what people's challenges are, and then help them solve those challenges using data. That, that will always be a constant. But I think what's changing is the tools that are available to help you do that. And that, but, you know, that's always been the case. 40 years ago, we were adapting to new tools and methodologies that were introduced to the market, and we're just continuing to do that. The overall skill set will be consistent, but you will also increasingly need R and Python if you're going to be a data scientist, or ethnography skills if, if that's your area of specialism. And that's interesting because obviously one of the big changes in the research industry over the last 10 years is the sort of influx of new platforms that I mean SurveyMonkey is obviously a great example of a self-service platform but increasingly some of our partners like Medallia and Qualtrics who have end-to-end -end surveying platforms I mean how do you see that evolving in terms of client-side researchers using platforms versus drawing on the skills of agencies how do you sort of see that balance playing out? I think perhaps we're moving to a more blended approach so I think there is a time and a place for all of those different tools, and that is just going to increase, just like there's a time and a place for blending different data sets. So I think we need all of that support and all of those services, depending on the challenge we're trying to solve for, ultimately. I know what's behind your question, and I think that kind of almost automation of service. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's something that is happening to our to our industry, you know, automation is happening to all industries. And I really believe that researchers' main skill set is in helping businesses make the right decisions. And we should see automation as a tool that allows us to do that. And we can apply a layer of thinking that we've always applied to those new tools that are being developed. So for me, it's an opportunity. It frees up some of the best minds in the world that work in our industry to apply their critical thinking, their talents to helping businesses do the right thing. I know in the past you and I have talked about this, this sort of difference that you see with your team in terms of what they produce and who their end client is compared to other traditional client-side insight teams. I wonder if you could talk a bit about that because I found it really interesting. Yeah, so the, I'm very specific on the strategy and the kind of the culture I guess I expect from my team and I ask for three things, creative delivery, a, a delivery mechanism we have that we call speedboats and battleships and take risks. Um, and specifically on creative delivery, as, as you just said, we are really focused on how do we get our message across to our customers and our clients. We are trying to answer a, and solve a question for them. But ultimately, if you sit in a meeting room and you see a 100 chart PowerPoint presentation with 100 graphs and 1,000 numbers, and then you ask everyone after, what's the one number you remember? No one's gonna remember the same thing. So if we're trying to deliver a very clear, punchy message, I try and challenge the team to think differently about how we're going to do that. We talk a lot about the theatre of research and how we can help people all remember the same thing. And the kind of the example I always give is we did some neuroscience to look at the impact that engaging with Twitter and brands on Twitter has on creating memory. And it was a fascinating piece of work. Um, and what we could have done was sit down and do a half hour presentation that was very methodologically heavy because there was a lot of science behind neuroscience. What we did was put me on stage in an auditorium in front of 200 people with a skull cap on and showed my brain or how empty my brain is live to these people. <laughs> and then I was on Twitter and I was playing around with it and you could see the impact it was having. That's much more memorable than me giving you a huge amount of graphs and numbers. There is science behind it and you kind of, I think as researchers we often, we almost use that as a crutch to justify the work we've put in because we know it's difficult and it's challenging and we're proud of that. We will spend a lot of time talking about that in the presentations that we give. Uh, you know, and I, I challenge my team to be brave, to take that as a given. If you've done six months work, but you can deliver that work in one number, one slide, one email, one phone call. It's something I've thought a lot about Twitter and I wonder if it's because in my, my role at Twitter being, you know, I, I measure ads for a large amount of my time and, and I deliver that insight to clients. I wonder if that's forced me to think about how ads work. Because ultimately we're all selling, right? When you're giving a presentation, whether it's in academia or, or whatever, you're selling your point of view and your answer to the audience. Uh, and because we've done a lot of thought and research into what makes great advertising, I wonder if I try and apply that to how we then deliver our work, both internally and externally. So the other two elements, the culture that um, we try and create in the Insight Analytics team at Twitter are around speedboats and battleships and taking risks. 
What I mean by speedboats and battleships is really an internal delivery mechanism. But I think it's really interesting for the industry as well. So what we mean is deliver lots of small things frequently as well as some big things periodically. Uh, and that's really taken from the insight that research, big research can take a long time and sometimes you just need a lot of small outputs to be delivered in the meantime to help keep your stakeholders happy and feel like they're, they're getting more from you. So we design research that is designed specifically to deliver a multiple amount of speedboats. And it's a really useful way of us challenging ourselves to think internally, how are we gonna keep our stakeholders on side? The third thing I ask everyone to do is take risks. I always say that they can't get fired as long as I know about it. In fact, challenge them to get me fired. Because I think when you're really pushing boundaries and taking those risks, that's when you do your best work. And I think it's great to like hear that kind of ambition you have for, for what you guys are doing as a research function. I wonder if you could just talk a bit more about the industry more widely, Jay, because I know you're really active in the industry. You know, you're a member of the MRS and involved in the Delphi group looking to the future. Can you just talk a bit about that and how you see things evolving? Yeah, I mean, it's something we talk about a lot, particularly in the, Delph in the Delphi group, about what kind of challenges the industry has. We've kind of touched on them already, but there's three that I would summarize. The first one is automation, which we talked about, but the industry adapting to the, the rise of automation, but using it as an opportunity, I think, is critical. I go to a lot of conferences where people are nervous about automation still. And for me, I really don't see that. I, f I see AI and automation purely as an opportunity to free us to do what we're great at which is interpret data and tell, tell meaningful stories that help businesses make the right decisions. And I think that's something the industry has to really focus on. The second one is diversity inclusion, especially at senior levels, we have work to do as an industry. I also think we need to think about educational bias and how we recruit as an industry from an educational bias point of view. We tend to recruit from top universities and that's great, but I think that creates a certain way of thinking and a certain way of interrogating data sets. And if we're researching the whole world, I think we should represent that. And I think the industry needs to do more to recruit from not the top you know, two, three universities or you know, no university edu education at all. I think the industry needs to be much more there. And then the third thing I think that we need to do is focus on helping businesses make decisions. It kind of goes to your point about rigor. I don't fully subscribe to the argument that you know, directional insight is good enough. But I also don't subscribe to the argument that you always need to be you know, 99.9% .9 statistically significant to make any kind of um, informed decision as a business. And I think the more our industry is led by the question that's being asked and the context it's being asked in, specifically you know, how fast do we need to help a business make that decision or, or who is that going to make that decision and what kind of information would they respond best to? I think that's something that we need to adjust to more because personally I've been on the side many times where I've been given a question, I've gone away for six months and I've done some fantastic research and then I've come back to the business and delivered my presentation but the business has moved on because I've missed, you know, I missed that window, I've missed that context um, and so I think as an industry we need to be much more led by the context of the questions that we're being asked. So there's been a lot of press attention uh, around you know, spam, bots, you know, the dark side of not just Twitter, but, but social media more broadly, I think. But you know, your, your CEO, Jack Dorsey, said, we aren't proud of how people have taken advantage of our service or our inability to address it fast enough. So perhaps you could tell us a little bit about what Twitter is doing to improve the quality of conversations and, and Twitter itself. Yeah, happy to. So we have an initiative that we've launched that I'll talk you through in a minute, but I think it's worth stepping back three and a bit years when Jack rejoined our business. So Jack founded the business 
left to rejoin three and a bit years ago. And, and since then, this has been his number one priority. He's been very clear that this is something, as the quote you read out says, that we need to tackle even more than we were. And we've made a lot of progress since the start, since he rejoined. So we know that in May 2018, our systems identified and challenged more than 9.9 million potential spammy and automated accounts, which is up from 3.2 million September 2017. So we're making good progress. But there's absolutely more to do, you know, and we totally recognise that. So what we've done is we've launched a, a public health initiative. So we're committed to helping improve the quality and the, um, the collective health and openness of public conversation. And that's something that we, we take really seriously, but also something we know that we can't do ourselves. We need help from experts and it will be stronger if we all come at this together. So we've launched a, a health initiative to do that and actually announced a selection of partners, one of which is Oxford University to help us both define how to measure the health of conversation and then hold, us, hold ourselves publicly accountable to how we are progressing uh, on the health of conversation on our platform. And do you think this is something then that, that sort of the industry more broadly will, will adopt? I mean, because I think it's, it's quite, a, quite an impressive and, and sort of bold thing for Twitter to come out and yeah. say, you know what, we, we stand for healthy conversations yeah. on our platform. Uh, we actually don't know precisely how you would measure that, so we're going to figure that out and then see what that, that starts to tell us and how perhaps that might change our service. You know, just speculating here, but, but do you think then that's going to you know, do more than just, just stick to Twitter. Yeah, I mean, I hope so. Personally, I hope so, right? This, this is a, a problem that is, as you say, you know, it's society-wide and something that I think we would all, we should all tackle together. I um, obviously don't know what other platforms and other services are thinking about doing, but I would hope that we all share this as a common goal to improve public conversation globally. In terms of what that might mean for brands, do you think, what, what could that mean for brands who are sort of using Twitter as a key part of their marketing mix? Do you think that will change the way they're using Twitter or do you? I don't think so. I think Twitter is a very brand safe platform as it is. You know, a, a healthier public conversation is only a good thing. So, I, I, you know, I think it will, if anything, it will be a positive for brands, but I don't think it is a negative for them right now. I mean, brand, you know, people use Twitter to find out what's happening in the world. We're a news source. Um, and brands use Twitter to help connect to that. Uh, and I think that is, will remain the case as the, the kind of the health of the conversation grows. All of this is, is net positive for brands, for human beings, right? And, and what we're trying to do is be very open about how we're approaching it and work together to get to an even better place for everyone. You've been listening to Future Proof, the marketing podcast from Said Business School and Kantar. Find more episodes and related content at uk.kantar.com or at sbs.oxford.edu. Thank you.